Hi, I'm Deb Crow, and welcome to season two of the Heart Centered Leadership Podcast. This is a podcast where we connect, learn, and laugh together with strong leaders from all over the globe. Here, you will learn from peers you haven't even met yet. You will gain new tools to add to your leadership toolbox. Because whether you're a C-suite executive or a first-time entrepreneur, we all contend with challenges and there's always room for improvement if we choose to seek it. So please pull up a chair and listen in. This is the Heart-Centered Leadership Podcast. Welcome back to Imperfect, the Heart-Centered Leadership Podcast. We are traveling across the pond today, the beautiful pond, the Atlantic Ocean to beautiful UK, one of my favorite places and spaces to be and to visit. I have many friends and colleagues there, and I'm delighted today to have another heart-centered leader. His name is Richard Newman, and I'd like to tell you a little bit about him before we start our interview. He's an award-winning writer. He is an in-demand speaker, and his expertise is in leadership communication, storytelling, mindset, and personal impact. He and his team have trained over 100,000 people worldwide, and he has clients in 46 countries. He says adapting to the new hybrid world, there are different ways to communicate now, and there's new ideas to struggle with but also ways to implement new modalities. And we're going to talk about all the emotions that fall off of that. So instead of me going on and on about how wonderful Richard is and why I want him on the show, I'm going to interview him. So Richard, welcome. Thanks, Deb. Really nice to be on your show. Appreciate you having me. Well, you have quite a eclectic background and experience and you're working in many, many countries. And I'm just happy to be able to share your experience and expertise. So my first leadership question is, you have really honed the master, the mastering, if I can say, of communication. And I know that you eloquently like to train and talk about the art of storytelling. My question is, storytelling has always had a place in our life and in business. How has it become even more vital now with our communication as we continue to navigate unprecedented times? Well, right now, there's so many of uh, our clients who are talking to us about the, the challenge of connecting with their team in this virtual uh, and or hybrid uh, situation. People are getting less face time. They're having less of that opportunity to be around the water cooler on coffee breaks with people just to sort of put a hand on somebody's shoulder and build up that connection. And so businesses have been through so much pressure, so many changes over the last couple of years that leaders are keen to put into action in order to look after people's jobs or pivot the business, move in a new direction. And so they're, they're navigating this path of lots of challenges while needing to communicate with people and having less face time uh, with them. And so in order to make those changes happen, if you've got new initiatives, new products, new services that you need to talk about uh, with your teams, then you may be doing that through virtual meetings. Uh, you might be doing that through emails and documents. Maybe you get the luxury of being with people face to face. But because there is such a, a lack of time together with people, we've got to build up the emotional connection when we have the opportunity to do so. And that's what storytelling does. So to be really clear about what storytelling is and isn't, 
I'm sure that people are up to speed with this now. It's not once upon a time. It's not talking about anecdotes, which some people think it is. They think I'll go through the spreadsheet, I'll do my bullet points, then I'll throw in an anecdote and that makes it storytelling and it really doesn't. It's also not a list of this, then this, then this, and then this because conclusion this. So storytelling, simply, if you, if you go back to the, the dawn of mankind, this is the way that we have passed down vital life lessons from one generation to the next before we had spreadsheets, before we had PowerPoint, before we could write things down. We would, from one generation to the next, create a story of meaning about the challenges and the threats that exist and our vision for what we're aiming to achieve as a tribe to pass that down so that people uh, would get on board with it, be able to do it, be able to remember all of the fine details behind it as well. And we, we can see that the way that we've told stories as different civilizations from around the world have a common pattern. And so Joseph Campbell, who I'm sure many people have come across if they've looked at storytelling, he put this together in The Hero with a Thousand Faces, going back to the 1970s where he looked across stories that have been told for thousands of years by civilizations that never had any contact with each other to see, was there a common way in which they were telling stories? And so looking at things like the story of Gilgamesh chipped into stone tablets uh, to see, does that have common themes with people, say, like Shakespeare, who didn't know about the story of Gilgamesh because it wasn't discovered until after he had died. And what he discovered, what Campbell discovered, was that there was this common way of telling a story and if you follow those steps, then suddenly you can compel people to listen. You can take them on a journey. And if you think about your favorite movie or your favorite book, three years later, you can remember the plots. You can remember the subplots. Uh, you can remember the, the, the meaning behind it. But if you think about your average business meeting, you can't. And maybe three days later, somebody says, what was that meeting about? And you might remember two sentences. So the power of storytelling is to engage the mind from the survival mind, the emotional mind, and the logical mind to understand what's happening, what's the purpose behind it, why should I care, what do I need to do, and motivate me to act. And so that, that is a critical skill for people to have now more than ever. It certainly is. And it's interesting because I've had so many discussions about heart-centered leadership it's not new, it's come to the surface. And more and more people are beautifully and eloquently telling their story. They're, they're showing their heart. They're giving glimpse of life at home because life at home is life at work right now. And, and you articulated that beautifully saying, we're still in hybrid. So there's not that separation of environments. So really fascinating the work that you're doing. My second question has permanent residency on the show. And I've asked every single leader this question, share with us what imperfections that Richard brings to his heart-centered leadership. Oh, wow. So many, too many to mention. We'd be here for hours. Uh, the imperfections that I bring, you know, I think that all of us have gone through challenges in our life that create uh, maybe like uh, what I would refer to as ghosts in the machine little points where you can get triggered to go into uh, the wrong direction. And for me, what, what, I, what I aim to do whenever I notice these things, I, I aim to come back to the word lift, which is, uh, I believe very much that a leader needs to lift others, lift their state, elevate them from a negative state or a neutral state into a positive or a more useful state. But able to do that, you have to be in a lifted state yourself. You can't approach a meeting with the intention of revenge or with resentment or with disdain towards somebody. You, you need to come in with that sort of fresh and open heart. And so for me, imperfections that, that would show up 
come from, you know, when I was a child at school, I was bullied. Uh, I, uh, I always felt there was something slightly different about me where I felt isolated from others and a lack of connection uh, with them and not feeling sure what, what that was. And it was only very recently, just a couple of months ago. So I'm very new to this, but I was just recently diagnosed with high functioning autism. And so uh, what that means is that there's a very big spectrum of autism. So when people hear that, they're often surprised. They think this doesn't look like what I thought autism was. But what this means is that uh, people with autism have a challenge with communication with neurotypical people. So when we experience an event, we're not experiencing it the same way. And we find it very difficult to understand small social cues that happen uh, in order to thread together in a meeting, a conversation, that the same sort of social flow that other people have. And so, so for me, I, that's something that I've had to navigate my entire life. And I've always sort of been aware that that was there, but didn't know what it was until recently. And so I have to be aware as a leader that when I go into a room, I may not be spotting some of what is happening or understand what it is or what it means. And so uh, I have to uh, be aware of that and then lean on certain people in my life. Uh, thankfully, say in my social uh, life, my wife is an incredible person, brilliant with people. And so in certain situations, I'll be leaning over to her and saying, you know, what is happening in this situation? What happened between that person and this person? Should I be picking up on it? Should I be doing something here? And, and I have brilliant people like that within my company too. So I think it's important for every leader to know what are your strengths, but also what are your weaknesses and, and hire those weaknesses and be prepared to lean on those people when you need to, to, to help you navigate the world. Oh my gosh, there's so much to unpack there. First and foremost, thank you for sharing your heart and the snapshot of where you're at right now. And you've just highlighted something so beautiful. There's so much power, superpowers, if you will, in being an introvert. And it's a topic I've gently unveiled through a few guests. And you've taken that power of being an introvert and you've gone through that resiliency tunnel and met yourself where you're at. And now you're coaching and, and mentoring leaders around the world. Kudos to you. That's brilliant. Now, one of the things I want to talk about, I can't wait to ask you this question. You decided to spend six months with Tibetan monks. I can't wait to hear the story. But the question is, why did you choose to pursue that experience to really get to the depths of your learning for nonverbal communication? So for me, all the way through school, I, I was aware that I, I was really struggling with communication. Uh, but something else that I knew I had a passion for was teaching. So part of my passion for teaching came up because when I was 12 years old, I, I joined the basketball team. I was fascinated with the basketball. I'm really born in the wrong country for this. We play football or soccer rather in the UK. Uh, there's not much basketball here, but I loved it. And so uh, I started uh, in this team and uh, we went to play our first ever match. And I didn't realize that uh, the other team, the other school that we went to play, they had been together as a team and practicing as a team for a year ahead of us. And so uh, we then got demolished by them. They got 81 points and we got 18. And the numbers always stayed with me because the numbers are, are the other way around. Uh, around. So 8-1 versus 1-8. Do you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to work harder at being a great basketball player here. And we did. We went on as a team. We ended up by the end of uh, being in high school together. We were beating every other uh, team by at least 30 points per, per game. So we didn't let that knock our confidence. But I thought what I'm going to do is I'm going to teach the year below so that they don't have to start 
playing basketball being demolished by other teams who've all had an extra year's experience. I'm going to teach them how to be the best version of themselves. And it was so delightful to do that, to give them this coaching that for whatever reason was not given to that year in school. So I started to develop this, uh, this passion for, for teaching people, helping them become, uh, reach their full potential. So that was already there, but also my desire to understand communication started to come up when I was 16 years old. A friend of mine bought me the book called Body Language by Alan Pease. And she said, you really need to read this because you're terrible with body language. And I, I read it thinking, I don't even know what this thing is. And it, it, was, it was like suddenly having this aha moment of thinking, wow, does like, does everybody know this stuff? Because I didn't know any of this. I wasn't aware of anything like this. And, and thought, I, I have to study this. I have to get good at this because this is clearly a vital key to communication. And so I was aware that I didn't want to just go off to university. I was clear that wasn't quite my path. I thought I wanted to do something before I went into higher education. And so uh, I applied to go overseas. I wanted to go to somewhere really remote where people really needed my help. And this organization that I went through, uh, they initially, they were trying to get me to be an acting teacher at a private school for wealthy children. And I really didn't want to do that. I said, no, you've completely misunderstood. I want to help people who need this help more than anybody else. And they said, well, there is this monastery where nobody's actually taught there before, but one of our representatives went there and, and has sort of set up this post and, and you can go out there and do this. And you know, they, they don't speak any English and you, you're going to help them. And I thought, this is perfect. Brilliant. Sign me up. And particularly, as you mentioned, uh, being an introvert earlier, this was a post that I could go and do by myself. And so I would get time alone, which is what introverts need in order to recharge themselves. But when I got there, I mean, it's, it was a huge trip to go across there. I'd never been overseas without my parents before at this point. And yet I flew off to India, landed in Delhi, had a two-day trip, then get myself across to the foothills of the Himalayas in Northeast India and eventually arrived in this little place called Kalimpong and found this monastery. And I was then greeted by these monks who didn't speak a word of English. And I then had to figure out through body language and tone of voice how to connect, how to communicate just on the simple things of what time are we going to do the lesson today and where are we going to do it? Where do I sleep? And uh, what I loved about this experience was that I was able to help them have a voice. So they were pretty much you know, isolated in this sense of uh, they were exiled from their country and they were wanting to integrate, wanting to connect with potential sponsors overseas so they could keep on sort of doing their work as monks within their, their community. And so every day at about sort of 6 or 7 p.m., uh, by which time, because of where we were in the time of year, it was starting to get dark. We'd have a power cut. I'd bring out candles. And we'd be doing these lessons where I'd just use body language and tone of voice to try and connect and communicate with them. And it was a challenge at first, but by the end of six months, we got really good at it to the point where they could then have a good conversation with me in English. And I learned how to speak Nepali, which was the main language of the town. And what was fascinating to me about that process, I was then better at Nepali than I was at French and German that I'd studied for four years at school. It was a fascinating experience. So I'd encourage anybody to do it. Or if you've got children who are, who are about to get to that age of maybe doing a gap year, I'd really encourage people to do it because it was a pivotal experience for me. Well, what a beautiful moment of time. I like to call it an heirloom memory that you've created and just the emotion that you shared with us and the resilience and creativity and innovation that you had to basically come up with and what an incredible journey you've had. 
It, it leads beautifully into my last leadership question. When we talk about nonverbal communication, body language, tone of voice, eye movement, facial gestures, what advice could you give to leaders right now who are observing, listening, witnessing, as you mentioned on Zoom or whatever platform, What's one little tip that you could give them to maybe take an observation to help a team member or a team at large grow from something you're noticing? And a good example I just want to throw in the ring and you can add to this is I always ask my leaders who used to talk and who isn't talking now. So give us a tip or an observation that I always like to give a little nugget based on my guests expertise when we finish off with the leadership questions, because it's a daily conversation for those of us working with global leaders. Yeah. So I I think one of the big pieces we're seeing that stands out as a theme over the last couple of years, not just since uh, we've all gone virtual, but before then too, is that we see a lot of people in companies who have turned into what I would refer to as transactional communication along the lines of, I have to go to this meeting and say this thing and show these uh, graphs and then leave. And then I have to go to this other meeting over here and persuade that person to give me what I need. It's really understandable that people are, are there because they've got targets to meet, expectations, stakeholders, shareholders. They're trying to hit uh, certain quarterly numbers. And uh, right now, people are starving for connection. We, we've been separated from each other for too long. We, we like being with each other. Like even myself as, a, as somebody who's highly introverted, we like being with other humans. We like to feel connected uh, with others. And so I would encourage leaders to look at every meeting that you're going to have uh, today, whether that's in person or whether it's virtual, uh, and really deeply consider how do you want people to feel by the time they leave this meeting? So the three big questions of communication are, you know, what do you want them to know? What do you want them to do? But also, what do you want them to feel? And the important part behind that question is that, you know, the know and do part is stuff that people tend to do in general. But the feeling part, you really have to focus on it. And uh, importantly, it's focusing outwards. It's not focusing on you. It's not thinking, how do I feel and expressing how I feel on the matter? It's really outward in, intentional where you're, you're thinking about the people that you're meeting with. And in order to think about, okay, I'd like these people to feel motivated by the end of this message, just to, just to take a really simple one. In order to do that, you have to tune into the people you're speaking to and think, what is it that actually motivates these people? or this particular person. You've got to be tuned in. You've got to be connected with them because sure, money might motivate people in some degree or job titles, but there's always values that are running beyond that, underneath that, that people care about far more than they do money and job titles and, and other pieces that, that are offered by work. And so if you, if you first of all ask yourself the question, how do I want them to feel? Get that clear in your mind. And then think, okay, for this person to feel inspired or this person to feel clarity, what is it for them that is currently getting in the way of feeling that? What is it about them that I can deeply connect with that allow that journey to take place? And by doing that, that the freedom of that too is for anybody who is nervous about communication or has any challenges there, it puts you completely away from self-consciousness towards uh, other people. 
Uh, and so you're free to then behave knowing that that is my true north. It, that's how I want to make them feel this way. Uh, and that will be a good thing for them. It's a win-win intention that I have uh, here. And so I'm entirely taking my body language, my tone of voice, my words rooted in that direction. So you're much more likely to be a more effective leader and a more effective communicator by, uh, by having that as your, uh, your focus. It's almost like you show up with your intention, but you allow the consciousness to be the forefront, otherwise known as mindful leadership. And you can't present to an audience, whether it's a team, whether you're on a stage, there needs to be an icebreaker. You need to kind of do an assessment of how everybody's doing. So I love the way you frame that. Okay, we're going to switch to my fab four. These are just four fun questions about Richard. We want to know what's on the top of that brilliant mind of yours. Tell us something that we don't know about you. Oh, well, uh, something that you don't know about me. Uh, well, I, I will have been together with my wife for 20 years uh, this year. We've got two beautiful ch children, Max and Ted, a uh, gorgeous dog, uh, Rosie, and I have really loved the last couple of years uh, with this pandemic. It was scary uh, to begin with and you know, lo lots of terrible things that have come up for, for different people through this process. I also think that there's some gifts that have come out of this. And before the pandemic, I was on about 50 flights per year. So, and I was doing that for about 10 years. And so I didn't realize up until the pandemic that I'd been jet lagged for 10 years. And I've been wondering what this sort of drain on my energy and consciousness, what really was. Uh, and so I've had this gift this last couple of years to transform what we did, which was entirely in-person events all over the world to, to serving all of the same clients, but just doing it from a, a home studio. And uh, that's given me the opportunity to be more of myself, more of the time to spend time with my children at the start of the day and at the end of the day. So, um, you know, I, I know so many people have had challenges during this process, uh, but for me, it's, it's given a, an opportunity to reflect and, and build life in a, in a different direction. I love that. It's beautiful. I, I join you in that, in that same space and, and just pure gratitude and, and a nice commute, not long commute. And, you know, technology has allowed us, I mean, I'm in Canada, you're in the UK, and here we are doing this beautiful interview. That was really beautiful. And I join you in jet lag. It's not fun. Okay, second question, share with us a book that you've read that was really life-changing and share the title and the author and how did it impact you? People Watching by Desmond Morris. So I mentioned before the book Body Language by Alan Pease, which is more the sort of commercial level of the book, which it's, it's fairly accessible. If people wanted to go down the route of learning more about nonverbal communication, they can go there. But if they want to go really deep, uh, then People Watching by Desmond Morris was fascinating for me. And from memory, I, I may not be getting all the details right here, but I think what he did was he took a team of 40 researchers around 25 cities in Europe to analyze what was happening in nonverbal communication, to see what the common were and what the differences were to really start to understand that. And so he was, uh, if you like, the, the sort of the godfather of that field of uh, starting to bring that area to life. And so it's, it's like a textbook of research on that. So if you fancy a dense read, I encourage you to do so. But for me, it, it was transformational in how I understood human beings and how I, how I saw interactions day after day and made me fascinated about that area and then led me into, into the coaching that I've been doing the last couple of decades. 
I was just going to say it's uh, it was the precursor to the brilliant work you're doing now. That's that's and even, you know, I'm thinking about spending the time with the monks and and everything has just added up to be a part of your journey to where you are today, which is it's beautiful to look back and reflect on. Okay, third question, if you could have dinner with any leader in the world and they could be living or maybe they've passed away, who is it and why? And what would the conversation be? Oh, great question. Uh, well, the answer that immediately comes to mind is the Dalai Lama. And uh, part of the reason I've always been fascinated to sit down and have dinner with him is that when I was staying in the monastery, aged 18, they were starting to build a room on the roof. So, so they, they had this sort of the main temple and my bedroom was immediately above the temple, which meant that I, every five o'clock every morning, I got awoken by chanting and the loud playing of instruments. And, uh, and then if I felt like it, sometimes in the evening, I would go up to the roof, which was just above me, just like the third floor. And uh, I would just uh, take a, a rug up there and stare at the stars. And it was so beautiful because there was no pollution there. So I could just stare at these magical stars for hours. Uh, but I noticed they were building a, a room up there. And I asked them at some point, you know, what is this room for? And they kept on saying the Dalai Lama. And the Dalai Lama, as I eventually realized, was going to be at the monastery six months after I left. Uh, so uh, just like the unfortunate uh, nature of timing, I, I couldn't stay and be there when, when they greeted him. But I think you know, something that I've always been impressed by, really amazed by, is his extraordinary spirit that uh, you know, has a, a great sense of humor that I can observe from a distance, great philosophy uh, on life and a peacefulness uh, in his approach and compassion to other people, uh, such that you know, so many people around the world gravitate towards wanting to spend some time with him. So I would simply want to ask him uh, more about you know, how he, during challenging times, uh, has been able to keep that wonderful heart-led compassion and sense of humor uh, about life. Uh, so uh, yeah, I think that would be an interesting uh, evening around the dinner table. He's, he's one of my top five as well. And I'm a yoga teacher. So mindfulness leadership and, and the composure, the equanimity, you know, that mental calmness and composure that you bring throughout regular times, unprecedented times, it would, it would be a great dinner conversation. I, I'm so delighted that you've joined me on the show today. And I just want to give you kudos for all the work that you're doing and, and the leadership that you're sharing across the globe. I love that you're putting a small dent in transactional communication because it seems to be the daily theme as people continue to navigate this pandemic. And uh, it was just a pleasure. So thank you for sharing your time and your expertise and your heart. And we close out the show by you answering question number four for me. Please finish this sentence for me. Heart-centered leadership is? Leading from the best part of your humanity with the intention to connect with the best part of the humanity in the people around you. So finding your own inner greatness and seeing the inner greatness of everyone that you work with uh, and by so doing, uh, raising the spirits of yourself and, and everybody around you. You've been listening to the Heart-Centered Leadership Podcast. I'm Deb Crow. If you like what you heard today, please rate and review the show. 
And I'd love it if you'd visit my website at debcrow.com where you can sign up for my newsletter and get access to the Heart-Centered Leadership Toolkit, all free of charge. Thanks for your time and we'll see you again.